0: Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for you to meet us here through your words, through the story. Thank you, God, that you speak to us. We are so hungry and desperate and truly in need when all is stripped away. For you to be and prove yourself to be the God you have said that you are, the God of power and creation, the absolute God, but the personal God who speaks words of mercy to his children. Your mercy in turning us away from those things that we so often pursue that do not satisfy, but not turning us back to condemnation or guilt or shame, but turning us toward your promise the finished work of Jesus, your Son. So will you meet us here this morning, Lord, as we think about hearing your word, sitting under your word, standing under the authority of your word proclaimed over us. The gift of not having to well it up within ourselves, but to receive it as a gift. Would you do that? Would you make us whole? Would you bring yourself glory, we pray? In Christ's name, amen. Came across this, across this quote this week from a writer who I really appreciate. Her name is Anne Lamott. Some of you know Anne Lamott. It's a great writer. And this is from a short essay she wrote entitled, Becoming the You That You Were Meant to Be. Where to start? She says, We begin by... We begin to find and become ourselves when we notice how we are already found. Already truly, entirely, wildly, messily, marvelously who we were born to be. The only problem is that there is also so much other stuff. So many other words coming at us all the time typically fixations with how people perceive us or how we perceive ourselves. How to get more of the things that we think will make us happy and with keeping our weight down. So the real issue is how do we gently stop being who we aren't? How do we Relieve ourselves of the false fronts of people pleasing and affectation, the obsessive need for power and control and security, the backpack of our old pains and wounds, and I love this line, and the psychic spanks that forever tried to keep us smaller and more contained. How do we find who we already truly are and who God has said that he is for us? So every week we come and we hear God's word read over us. For those who are new, you should know we're in a series right now called Rhythms of Grace. We're walking through kind of the elements of our service because we want to be a people who not only does things in church, but who know why we do those things. And if those aren't the very things that God has given us to write us into his story and show us who he is and who we are and fill us with his grace and his glory so that we might be those who are sent to our neighbors in the city, then there are things we shouldn't do at all. We hear God's word every Sunday. It is spoken over us for a variety of reasons, but perhaps we could sum it up in a simple question, a question that many of us ask regularly. Who gets to tell you what is most truly true about who you are and why you are? Who gets to tell you what is most truly true about who you are and why you are, when there are thousands of voices coming at us every day saying, be more, do more, get more likes, more hearts, look better, and by the way, be scared. And proportionate to your fear, based on the amount of news you watch, there's a variety of products that you can buy to not only better yourself, but to be a little less fearful for now, because the dopamine's going to wear off. Who gets to tell us? Who gets the final word over our lives, and our hearts, and our marriages, and our children, and our grandchildren, and our workplaces, and all the things that are both joyful and challenging? Is it the media, experts, talking heads? That would be no more helpful than the mirror. And yet, as some of you in this room know, because a handful of you are teachers of young kids, there's a problem A problem with bullying. There's always been a problem with bullying. A problem with uh, mental health. The challenge of looking into the mirror in the morning and believing that what's looking back at you is deeply insufficient and not whole and not loved and not cared for and not enough. So God, help us to not trust the words of our feelings that are so fickle and so driven by our temperament And the time in between our last green chili burrito and the circumstances of our lives. I'm so glad that when Jesus speaks to his children in his word, he says, look, they're sheep. They need to be led and loved and guided. And they shouldn't be sheep without a shepherd. Because to be impacted and affected and listen to all these voices that are coming at us all the time is just it's exhausting. We're, we're so busy with it, with reading through the news and news feeds. We're, we're exhausted. So not only do we need a word spoken over us, but we need one that can genuinely provide some rest, that can carve out some Sabbath rest into our lives that isn't movable and shakeable. based on the challenges and worries of the day. So what about Rest. I still feel like we're here way too early and it's the late service. Daylight savings time. Lord have mercy on the farmer or whoever discovered that thing or made that up. You know, I saw a a cartoon, like a political cartoon. Some of us call those memes now. said, man, God bless you if you're still here in March. Praise the Lord, you made it to March because in January we survived the threat of World War III. In February we've survived a global pandemic Lord only knows what's coming down the pipe. Oh, Lord, where can we find rest? Where can we find a true word? These questions and concerns are real. That's why we come to church. Not to hide those things, but to be gathered as the sheep and the children of God. To in those things find help and find hope. And so this morning... As we think about the public and weekly reading of Scripture. As we think about getting into God's Word daily in our own lives. Hearing it and studying it. Here's the promise of God to you this morning. That God invites us in the chaos of the world. In the cacophony of voices. In the siren songs of do and be more. In the restlessness of human existence and our finitude. God invites us to rest In his words to us. God speaks. God invites us to rest. And so with the author of Hebrews, let's remember Psalm 95. It's an invitation. It's a challenge. It's a gift. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear the living and true God speaking to you through his word by the Holy Spirit... Let your hearts be soft so that God can work on those hearts. And then let the Lord go work on those hearts in public as they burn with passion for His glory and His name. So our neighbors might look at church and go, oh yeah, there is something different happening there. People who shouldn't have much in common, who factually don't, but who do deeply love one another and are deeply loved by the God who speaks. So this morning, what I want to focus on is the rest that we receive in the Word of God and how does the Word of God bring us that rest? What rest does the Word do? And that's why we read it publicly every week. So first, the Word of God brings us the rest of God because God's Word covers us. The Word of God brings us the rest of God because God's Word cures us. And the Word of God brings us the rest of God because God's Word cares for us. Ongoing in our lives. So first, God's Word covers us. The question here might simply be, can we rest in God's authority? Because it is God who speaks in His Word. And the fact is we all have authorities in our lives. Some of you have heard the genus species for mankind homo sapiens, homo sapiens, man who thinks, man that is rational, but long before that St Augustine made a great point, we are homo religionis. We are all the same because we are all ultimately spiritual and made to worship. Everyone has an ultimate word, an ultimate standard, an ultimate truth around which their life revolves. There's no way to avoid it. I was talking to John about this recently. He said he was at a party and, of course, someone asked him, what do you do? The dreaded party-killing pastor question. You know, I think I'll go get another drink now. And he's explaining this to this, and this is, by the way, this isn't even really how the story happened. It's a total bad paraphrase. But basically, this sweet lady just simply asked him, well, is your church one of those open-minded churches? Ooh. (laughs) And I thought he had a great response because, number one, all are welcome here forever to come to Jesus freely with empty hands and by his grace be changed, right? The gospel comforts the afflicted. But the gospel afflicts the prideful and the comfortable. But he had a great answer to her question. Are we one of those open-minded churches? He goes, you know, I don't really think anyone is open-minded. Oh, I'm going to go get another drink now, you know. (laughs) To the point. There aren't just a group of people who who live 30,000 foot, always seeing the forest from the trees, objective, neutral, without assumptions or biases or axioms or presuppositions. no. We all listen to certain words. We all have words spoken over us and to us. We all have in life ultimately a standard upon which we simply ask the question, says who? And the question of the God who calls us and covers us with His authority is, do those words give you rest? That's the question of, of the author of Hebrews in chapter 4. He's talking about how Jesus is superior to Moses. And from Moses to David and beyond, the people of God wandered, looking, waiting, wanting, desiring the rest of God. So we're invited to sit under that word that does work on us and ask, do the words we believe give rest? This is why I love that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, a beautiful and challenging book, is a sermon. It's a sermon. It would have been read aloud to the churches as it was circulated. We don't know who the author was. And we don't know exactly who the people were to whom it was written. What we do know is they were most likely Jews in the diaspora. That means they were spread around the Roman Empire. And as a result... They were most likely persecuted. And as a result, they were the people of God in suffering. That's why the author of Hebrews takes great pains to show them that in their suffering, there is a true and better word, the God who speaks. And the word he speaks is Jesus, his son. The book of Hebrews could be construed in this way, a demonstration that the entire Old Testament, Old Covenant, Promises of God are fulfilled in the final work of Jesus. And in Jesus, there is rest. So I think it's good for us to marvel for a moment at the God who covers us with His authority and His love. He's a personal God who speaks. He doesn't simply say, climb to the top of the hill, empty yourself of all your thoughts, and get in touch with the force that's out there. Unfortunately, the force... Is impotent. The force does not speak. The force does not act. The force cannot save you when you're drowning. It cannot, like Jesus, reach his hand down and lift you up as Peter and say, Be not afraid. So God is personal. That's why Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active because, thanks be to God, Jesus is alive. The Word of God is living and active. Simultaneously, it's not an uninterrupted collection of pithy religious sayings. The Bible isn't a gigantic collection of fortune cookies. You know, crack it open and what's the wise piece of advice? What's the daily bumper sticker? You know, what's the newest edition of the best-selling Hallmark cards? The God who covers us in His authority calls us not only to, to his personal interaction with us, but also to be, to be laid bare, to be open in our hearts to what he might want to do in our lives. And I love this, so that on the one hand, the word of God keeps us as Christians from compromising with the culture, but it also keeps us from hiding from the culture, Because God's word has authority when he speaks, we can go boldly out into the world and be in the world and not of it. We don't need to be afraid of compromise for the word protects us, but we don't just come to God's word asking for candy. We ask him to work and call and confront the other words that come to us in lies and half-truths. And as God does that, He creates with his word a people. In the beginning was was God, and God spoke everything into existence. God's word not only is, but does. God acts through his speech, and what God is doing here every Sunday is gathering his children to recreate a people for himself, for his name, and for his glory by the words that he has. I love this. It's not merely that the authority of the personal and the absolute God who speaks, calls and confronts us, but it's what builds us up as a body. Consider Moses at Sinai. He receives the word of God. And what does he do? He comes off the mountain and he reads the word of God to the people of God. And in reading the word of God to the people of God, he constitutes and creates A people, as the Holy Spirit makes that word real on their hearts. It's the same thing that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah. They come back from exile. The people are hurting. They are broken. They are sad. They are attempting to rebuild the temple. It's nothing like its former glory and to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And what do they do? They read the word of God. And it convicts the hearts of the people. It cuts them deep, but in the same moment it cuts, it heals. It builds them up. It makes a people where there was no people. This is what God does when he speaks. Moses, to the people at Sinai, there's a new story about you. You're no longer slaves. This is why in our worship, the word is central. We sing it, we pray it, we're called to worship by it, we're sent out, blessed by it, we study it, we read it, and we come to feast on it at the Lord's table. The Word of God is the center. Because it's the Word of God that has the authority to call us out of earthly comforts, confront wrong voices, and create a new people where there was none. We're not slaves anymore. There's a new story, a new narrative, a new truth that is being spoken over our lives. And so in this way, when we come to hear God's word every week, we are, we are engaging in covenant renewal. In the renewal and in the retelling of God's promises. Now what the heck is covenant renewal? That sounds crazy. That's weird words. Well, I'll tell you. Because I'm a nerd and I like to talk about these things. I think this is really beautiful. In the ancient Near East, the way that people made binding contracts... Was through dead lawyers. They took an animal and they sacrificed it and they cut it in half and they put the blood and the pieces on the ground. And then the two people would walk through that animal, that little path, and it would signify Do this and you will live, do it not and you will die. Keep these promises and you will live, break them and you will die. But there's a problem for the people of God, and the Old Testament is is rife with this. We keep breaking our promises. But God has promised to keep keeping his promises. And oftentimes in these contracts in the ancient Near East, they would be between a lesser people and a great king. And the great king, the suzerain, would say, I'm going to take care of you, my little vassals, my little people. And in the same way, every Sunday as we come to sit under the hearing and the speaking of God's word, we are rehearsing and re-believing And rehearing the very promises of God for us. That God himself has walked through that cut covenant in the death of Jesus' son. Don't you understand? The cross and the blood of Christ is a cut covenant. That is God shedding blood in the sacrifice of the pure and spotless lamb. So that he himself might walk through it. So that in all of our failures the promises might be kept which is why when we sit under his word every week in this ceremony of covenant renewal, we are being reminded not of our failures, not of our fears, not of how much we struggled to do it right this week and to self-help and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we are hearing the words of the great king, the suzerain declaring over his people, I've already done it. I've already walked through the promise. I've kept the promise. The promise cannot be broken because the promise rests on my person, nature, and character. And I'm the God who covers you. It's exactly what the Lord did in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned, and there were consequences. We're about to feel that. The warmer it gets, and the weeds start popping up everywhere. There are consequences. But what does God do? He cuts a covenant. He takes an animal, he sacrifices that animal in the garden, and what does he do? He makes clothing to cover his children. He says, look, you're going to leave this garden, life's going to be hard, life is hard, you all know that. There are challenges as well as joys, but I am the God who covers you. So it's not based on your person or personality or prowess or success, but on my promise, and we have to sit under that truth every single week. So there is rest in the Word of God because He covers us. He also cures us. He also cures us. I love that the Bible is so honest about what our, our deep issues are. There's a clear, clarion diagnosis here. There's no mincing words, because some of you have read a lot of history. Some of you have read a lot of history books here, and you know a lot more than I do. And so clearly, for, for human beings to figure it out, it has to be a little bit more than, eh, if I just had more money, it would solve all my problems. Some of you, the more money you get, the more problems you have. I can help you with that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, well, if I just had more education, you know, if we just had more education, oh, is education good? Absolutely. But does that solve all of our issues? By no means. I remember reading that during World War II, the rise of the fascist Nazi regime, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great liberator, and Heinrich Himmler, the great leader of the SS, went to the same schools and read the same books. No, the Bible says that the diagnosis is that ultimately, without the help of God, we love ourselves more than we love anything else. And we constantly say back to God, did you really say? The Bible calls that sin. The love of self that leads to the breaking of God's law. God's law, which reflects His nature, which was given to us, simply that we might be whole and happy. And we say, no, I'm going to do it my own way. I know what's best for me. I don't want to hear God's word. I want to write my own story. These things can distract us for a time. They can can provide long seasons of temporary relief, but in the end, either in this life or or in the next, they provide no rest. And that's why the call of today, hear his voice, is both a plea and a warning. A plea and a warning. And I want, to hear, I want us to hear in the tone of a loving father who isn't chiding, who isn't mocking, who isn't shaming their child. But instead, as, as we sit under the word of God every week, he's saying, will you trust me? Will you believe me? There's a lot of stuff in the Bible I don't like. That wasn't in the third person. Like literally, there's stuff in the Bible that's hard for me. And it'd be way easier to just go with the culture or way easier to just, you know, pick out those verses I like and make my own mini Bible. it be about eight pages long of my life verses that make me feel happy every time I read them. But it's as if God is saying to us weekly, look, you know what it's like to come to the end of yourselves, don't you? You know you can't find rest in yourselves. And the sweet voice of the father whispers to his children, you were never meant to. You were never meant to. The book of Hebrews takes us on a tour de force of the history of the nation of Israel, the people of God. And the history of Israel is the story of the restlessness of God's people. Even the word Israel means to strive, to wrestle with God to wrestle with God in my restlessness so that I might find rest in Him. God's word, we're told in Hebrews, cuts through all of our fakeness. That's why we need to hear it every week. That's why we need to gather and sit under it because it it shows us what's really going on. It cuts through all the outside layers that we can surround ourselves with, the masks, the fakeness. I'm just as guilty as you. Hebrews tells us that nothing is hidden. Everything will be exposed. I don't know about you, but that's kind of scary to me. It's kind of scary to me because I have some secrets that y'all don't know. Thankfully, I know most of your secrets. (laughs) Call that pastoral collateral. No, I'm kidding. Bad joke. Bad joke. But I love this, that in verse 13, although we're told that the word of God divides our hearts and shows us what's really in our heart, shows us our our true motives, our true need, it says it exposes us. And we are naked before God because with God, nothing is hidden, even the stuff you and I try really, really hard to hide. But did you notice the difference between Hebrews 4 and Genesis 3? We are exposed, we are naked, before the word of God that lays us bare, but we are not ashamed. We are not ashamed. Because it is the same God, rest-giving God, word-speaking God, who not only diagnoses our problem, but sends a doctor to do something about it. This is God's true love for us, that Jesus is the great physician, and it's not always easy to undergo surgery and be in treatment or a life of rehabilitation from our navel gazing and narcissism. It's a challenge, but the great physician has promised to walk with us every step of the way. And so, yes, the gospel brings us here, God brings us here to speak to us, and to be honest, oftentimes offend our sensibilities. Just as the surgeon offends the outer layers of skin so they can actually get into where the disease is that it might be removed. I love this little quote we've heard. I don't know, I feel like maybe even once a month I do this one, but that's for me. Because really I'm preaching to myself up here. God is the audience, and I need to hear this. We are more deeply in need. The diagnosis is grave. We are more deeply in need than we can even begin to know. Because the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's really painful to untie it. So we put in a lot of work to not do that. We are more deeply in need than we can begin to know, but we are more truly loved than we ever dared imagine. Oh, that is the good news of the doctor who comes to cure us, to heal us, to make us whole by his very word. Verse 8 tells us, I love this, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Oh, the doctor comes to remind us you can't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. But Lord, we are men. We are women who will save us from these bodies of death. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Word became flesh. God didn't just say, do this. He didn't say, memorize these verses. He didn't say, live by these sayings. God said, I will send my one and only son, the word become flesh, so that the word itself might be torn, so that I might do surgery on the world through the tearing of my son, that I might bring healing to all those who believe by faith. The work of Christ is our rest. And of course, lastly, the word of God that brings the rest of God means that God's word cares for us. Covers, cures, and now cares for us. Because if you're a Christian this morning, what you and I need, what you and I need is help ongoing. Help every day ongoing. And so the word of God actually brings rest, not just at the moment where our eyes are open and we say, praise God, thank you for saving me. But every day when our eyes open and we go, Yeah, Lord, I do praise you, but this is kind of not what I bargained for. Can we rest in God's guidance? How shall we do this thing that Hebrews tells us to do of striving? We see that God's word calls us and even creates us as a people. It diagnoses our need and God himself is the doctor. But what now? And we'll end with these two things. That in our ongoing practical care and guidance in the grace of God, the word both protects us and provides for us. Protects us and provides. We see all over the scripture that the word of God is given to protect the people of God. I love Psalm 23 where David prays, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now what the heck does that mean? Kind of know what the staff is for, right? If you're a shepherd, you got a staff. you got to pull your sheep away from, you know, the bad cesspool of water and from the pit it's about to fall in and from the bad grass and the roadkill it's about to eat and guide that sheep over to living water and green grass. Because sheep, of which we all are, are not the sharpest tools in the shed. And sometimes the sheep aren't listening. So, you know, sheep with the staff, little whack. Not hard. You're not trying to hurt the sheep because you want to care for that sheep because it's your child. But every now and again, a little whack. So what's a rod for? Why does David, who's praying as a sheep, say, your rod comforts me? Because he's talking to God as if God were the shepherd, not himself. Well, let me tell you what these rods were used for. These ancient billy clubs of the, of the class of shepherds, they were used against the wolves. You would never, not if it was your pet, not if it was your kid, and definitely not if it was your grandkid. You would not use the rod on someone that you loved and you wanted to raise up and care for and nurture. Not in this context of shepherding. Because the rod was used to get rid of wolves. The rod was used for those who would prey upon the sheep of God. Who would attack them. And in our context, that means anything that would lead us away from the gospel. Whether it's a false gospel like the prosperity gospel. Whether it's doubt and unbelief that isn't countered with the love and the mercy of God in relationship with him. Any manner of false teaching. Anything that gets us off the main thing. Of God's glory and our joy. The Word of God protects us. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. And as you know, and I've heard probably more than a few preachers preach on, there's one offensive weapon in the arsenal of the Christian. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So we have the shield of faith. We hold that up against the lies and half-truths of the devil, did God really say? Those that come from outside and within our own minds. But we don't just sit there cowering under the shield. No, we fight. We, we go on the offensive. We use the Word of God to, as Paul says, take every thought captive and submit it to the Lordship of Christ. So the Word of God protects us. And this is why we need to know the Word. Because it's the Word that sorts us out. It's the Word that interprets us. This last week I was meeting with some friends and we were talking about someone who had come to faith later on in their life. A young woman who would come to faith maybe in her late 20s and her early 30s. She'd kind of tried everything. She'd, you know, kind of done the whole hippie spiritual thing. She'd done a bunch of different other religions, self-help. She tried a little bit of everything and she started reading the Bible. And Jesus was wooing her and pursuing her and calling her to himself until finally she said, wow, the more I read about this God, this God who loves me in his son, the more I realize this is the God I've been praying to my whole life. Because it's God's word that interprets us, not the other way around. We need the word to protect us, and we need it to provide. So in Psalm 23, we don't only get the rod to keep the wolves at bay, but we get the staff to guide us to living water and green pasture. We get Ephesians 5, where Paul draws on the analogy of Christ and his church for husbands and wives he says, "Husbands, wash your wives in the water of the word, because that's what Jesus is doing for us every single week." A lot of you in here are married. A handful of you have done a vow renewal. Anyone done vow renewal? Just do like little renew your vows. No, I'm available. We'll work for dinner afterwards. Listen up, bride of Christ. Every time we come in to hear the promises reread over us, we are literally engaging in a vow renewal between Christ the bridegroom and you and me, his bride. We are being washed in the water of the word. Psalm 12 says that the word of God can purify us like silver purified seven times. And Psalm 119, of course, says that the word of God is our, our guide. It's like a lamp unto our feet. It's like honey to our lips. In a dry and weary land where there are so many things speaking over you, be this, do this, buy this, be more, if only. The very word of God is honey to our lips. It satisfies our soul. The provision of of the word is that Jesus is never done pursuing us, and in our lives, pursuing the rest that he has purchased for us, that is ours because of God. And so John 10 says, my sheep know my voice, they hear it. When I speak, my sheep go, wow, that's the story I've always longed to be a part of. My sheep say, wow, that's the God I've been praying to my whole life. My sheep say, yeah, that's my identity. Free from the chains of sin. Properly diagnosed and now on my way to healing. Protected and provided for. So friends, today, as we hear his voice, let us not harden our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you cover us. That you call us as a personal, powerful God, a Savior, not just a list of sayings. And like a loving Father, you confront the lies, the half truths, the other words that swirl around us and threaten to overcome. Out of that, you create us anew, a new people, a renewal of your covenant and your promises based on your character. They can never be broken because they are made in the blood of your Son. So Jesus, I pray today, turn our hearts from lesser food, from lesser words, from things that do not satisfy, and turn them to you, Lord, where we need to confess and repent and believe. Would you guide us? Would you protect us? Would you help us in your word? I thank you that you have promised to do that for me. In Jesus' name, amen.